I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shifters who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. Today for episode two, we are speaking with Austin Channing Brown, someone who I have basically fangirled over um, in 2018. Um, Austin Channing Brown is a leading new voice on racial justice, and she is the author of one of my favorite books of 2018, which is called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Austin is committed to exploring the intersections of racial justice, faith, and black womanhood. And I love speaking with anybody whose work sits at these different intersections, especially around race and spirituality and womanhood. So I'm very excited to speak to Austin today. Welcome to the show, Austin. I'm so grateful to be here. Yes. We had a little moment before hitting record, right? Of just like, you're real, you're here. <laughs> you have a voice. Yeah. You have a house. You have a chair that you're right. sitting in. <laughs> right. Amazing. Real people. Um, real people. Oh. Yeah, Austin, I'm really excited to speak to you today. As I was saying to you before we hit record, your book was so nourishing for me um, as I was doing some big work um, with the Me and White Supremacy Instagram Challenge. I read yes. your book, right? I read your book just after finishing that challenge and it was like filling myself back up after having done a lot of emotional labor. Um, and I know one of the things that you speak about, which we will talk about in this um, episode today, is learning how to center ourselves yes. in a world made for whiteness. And so yes. I just want to thank you for the gift of reminding me of that um, after coming off of the back of doing a, 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 this huge challenge that was yes. very much not centering whiteness, but specifically I was holding a lot of space for white people and I need right. to remember right. to center myself. Oh, it makes me so, so happy to hear you say that because I so often have uh, white people who come up to me and will say, I am so grateful for this window into your world. I'm like, you know, I'm really glad that you got some good things out of it. Right. <laughs> But this was for Black women. Right. <laughs> like, like this was a book that intended to be affirmative of your value, right? right. And to let you know that you're not losing your mind. Yeah, that's how I, <laughs> that's how I felt when I read it. You're I not like, losing your mind, yes. Layla. Yeah. You're, you're, you're on top of it. Oh, my God. Yeah, we have a guest with us. I'm so sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Who's our guest today? That is little Mowgli. Hi, Mowgli. And when mommy gets excited, Mowgli gets excited. So <laughs> mommy, mommy's going to try really hard. <laughs> Although talking with Layla does spell trouble. It just spells trouble. 
<laughs> let's, let's dive in and welcome to the show, Mowgli. Um, Austin, I want to know who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned, familial or societal, who have influenced you on your journey? You know, I absolutely have to begin with my grandmothers. Um, so I have one grandmother who has passed away and I have one grandmother who's still living. And I think of them regularly as I do this work. Um, my grandmother who passed away um, was one of the black women who had to work really hard for every little thing. Mm. Um, she raised five kids, um, largely on her own. Um, she tried to finish school um, and just wasn't able to complete all the coursework because she had to work and take care of kids. Um, she was immensely talented, right? Mm. Um, but like so many of our ancestors, that talent could only shine so far because of the systems of the world, not because of her own personal lack, you right. know? And so I think a lot about her and then my grandmother who's still living um, was largely privileged socioeconomically. Um, she was a teacher. She was a home ec teacher for years and years and years um, and had a very different lifestyle than my other grandmother did, but was still so impacted by race, you right. know, even yeah. with all the, the privilege of owning her home and having a really nice secure job and you know um the things that a lot of folks in her generation didn't get um that doesn't mean that she didn't have to struggle and work and prove herself um every single day so i think about the two of them all the time mm. and how how does their influence uh, and the, the kind of relationship that you've had with them and the things that you've learned from, it sounds like really observing the differences in, in what their experience was. How has that influenced your writing and, and how you think about yourself as a Black woman? Oh, man. You know, that's almost a difficult question to answer, not because... Um, um, because there are a lack of examples, but there are a lack of words, mm. <laughs> you know, it's hard to describe the level of influence. Um, so I would say my one grandmother is incredibly bougie. <laughs> um, she is the most sophisticated woman I've ever met. Um, she has traveled the world. She has broken all the boundaries that black women in her age should not have accomplished, should not have done, should not have been. Mm. Um, she is just, she's just amazing. And she helps me think about what I could do. So I have never traveled outside of the country. Um, I've lost count of how many times my grandmother has traveled outside the country. Wow. Um, she would, she says things to me like, um, now listen, baby girl, when you uh, first travel, first class is the only way you travel internationally. She sounds a lot like my mother, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, there is no other way to crisscross an ocean, honey. <laughs> Get your butt in first class, right? But in that way, she teaches me in so many ways what I am worth what I can accomplish, what I can dream for myself. Um, 
she teaches me a lot about my own ambition. Mm. Um, with her, ambition is not a scary word. With her, ambition means that I can accomplish whatever I want to accomplish for my own life. And with my other grandmother, I think the word that really comes to mind is perseverance. Mm. And I'll tell you the way that she really influences my work is that even now when I am writing, um, I have to be careful of my own educational privilege, my own socioeconomic privilege, the privilege of my platform, um, the privilege of being an author. Um, and, and she helps root me back in the Black community that my parents are from. Right. You know, she helps root me in um, realizing that Blackness is not monolithic and that my life um, is not, quote unquote, the standard for all Black folks, right? Mm. That there are still Black folks in the hood. There are still Black folks in the projects. There are still Black folks um, who want a better education, Black folks who want a better job, Black folks who are dreaming about their book but have to work a full-time job because that's what their lives require. Right. And so she, she helps me remember um, that there's more to our black story than my own life. Hmm. And I find that extraordinarily helpful. I, I really love the, um, just, it, it sounds like the grandmother that you were just speaking about now that she really roots and grounds you Yes. And your other grandmother who's still alive really helps expand you. I wish you could see like my heart lighting up right now. Mm. <laughs> I think I think that's a perfect example. I think it's a perfect, yes. I yeah. wouldn't say it any other way. I wouldn't say it any other way. I think that's absolutely right. That's such a um, powerful uh like to, for you know, I kind of see you as the center of that, you know, triad. Yes. You know? Um, and it, it just, it, it, I don't know. I just have like chills and tingles because your, your, you know, the work that you're doing is, is very different to the work that your grandmothers have done. And that's right. That's right. right. Um, and yet it, it, they didn't need to be an author right in order that's to right. in order to have this huge influence on you that's right there was right. no platform there was right. no right they were just doing what they thought was best for their lives yeah. and doing what they thought was best for their families and and that was always enough right and that's what i want people to really understand you know we're talking about ancestorship with this podcast but it doesn't I want people to understand that you don't have to become this great guru, teacher, huge platform owner, you know, you, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your, you know, uh, experiences right now, you're always influencing someone in your life. My grandmother, who was a home ec teacher back when that was a thing, <laughs> home ec classes, um, I, she lived in a different city than I lived in. So I never really got to see her at work. Mm. Um, but one thing that she was responsible for was doing the costumes for the school plays. And so I remember there was one school play. It was Peter Pan. 
that she had done all the costumes for. And my mother took me to go see this like high school play. Mm. And I was enthralled because she had created a costume for a crocodile. And she had the crocodile come off stage and like wiggle its way down the (laughs) middle aisle. And I was amazed. I mean, I was absolutely enthralled that my grandmother's hands had crafted this artwork, right? This like living artwork in front of me. Right. She will never have that on YouTube. It will right. never go, right? On it will Instagram. never go viral. It would never be on Instagram, girl. Right. But it lives in my memory from when I was a little girl because mm-hmm. I was so inspired by what she could do with her hands. Yeah. That's yeah. beautiful, Austin. That is so beautiful. Um, oh, just, just my heart's right now. <laughs> you started uh, it. <laughs> Um, I want to speak about your book. Uh, this is your first book, which I'm just like, wow. Congratulations. First of all, thank you. Um, I think I heard about your book through Brene Brown. I think that's who directed. Not wild. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was Brene Brown who had shared your book a number of times. And I was like, Oh, who is, who is this person? Um, and that's, so that's how I found you. And as soon as I could, I ordered the book. Um, and so, you know, tell us about this book first. I I would rather you introduce it than I do. And and, yeah. Oh, girl. So I grew up around a whole lot of white folks. Um, I was very rarely like the only black person around, but definitely still in predominantly white classrooms, predominantly white neighborhood. Um, And I thought I had gotten really good at navigating white culture. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought I was like on top of it. Girl, and then I got to work in like professional settings and realized, huh, this is altogether different when your health benefits are tied mm. to white culture as opposed to just a grade. Yeah. Right. And I found myself floundering. And the truth is I wrote the book that I wish I'd had when I was floundering. Yeah. That's the real truth. Wow. And I, I love books. I love books. And I just eat up, you know, Roxane Gay and Tanasi Coates and, you know, James Baldwin. And, um, but none of them were about a black girl in an all white space who's trying to figure out how to navigate, you know, like, yeah. like, you know, the story just felt so particular, but I knew I wasn't the only one. Yes. For sure. (laughs) I know because they're in my classrooms, right? And they're at my workplace. Like I know I'm not the only one experiencing this. Um, And so I really just wanted publishers to give it a chance and say, you know what? Growing in the hood is not the only way to live a black life, right? Like it's not the only danger, (laughs) right? Like even those who grow up in quote unquote safe middle-class, predominantly white neighborhoods are still navigating a certain level of violence to ourselves. You know, I was, what I really 
one of the things that I really loved about your book was the the personal stories. You're you're speaking about your experiences in your life. Um, You're also speaking about the intersection of, of, of race and Christianity. Right. Right. Um, And that was my first time reading that kind of a book. I've read, I've read a lot of books about race um, by brilliant black writers. Mm-hmm. But this was m- my first time specifically reading a book about someone who was coming from the space of Christianity and what right. that was like. And even though I'm not a Christian, I'm a Muslim. Um, I, gr- I grew up going to Catholic schools. Um, did you? I did, yes. <laughs> Until the age of about 15 when we moved here to the Middle East. So I grew up in the UK. I went to, to Catholic okay. school. Okay. I know all the prayers, the hymns, everything. Um, Girl, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so that was, that was really interesting for me to yeah. read, though, because um, you were navigating your religious beliefs. That's right like your personal religious beliefs with what you were actually seeing in your environment with That's other right. Christians. I have found myself doing theology, Christian theology at a mm-hmm. very young age because I had to figure out, is there a difference between how white culture sees me and how God sees me? that part right right especially and again i'm i want to make it clear i'm not a christian but especially when i know growing up in very christian environments i understood Mm -hmm. christianity to be a predominantly white religion yes and not not one that was from the middle east Right, right. <laughs> because it's so westernized here. Right. They will have you believe in that Jesus really is a tall, bland, blonde, blue you know, eyed. white guy, blue right. eyed from Europe. Right. You'd be like, uh, no. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, we, we, uh, as a Muslim, we, um, we believe that um, Jesus Christ was a very important prophet mm-hmm. he's, he's mm-hmm. one of the most important prophets in our religion he's very beloved in our religion so mm-hmm. there is but but at the same time i had grown up understanding jesus belonged to christians and not to us it was only afterwards that i re- oh okay wow. we also <laughs> believe in jesus right. very different to to what i grew up with um but that being said your your questions absolutely just struck me of that trying to seek out how you are viewed that's right in that space right. right and so what are the, some of the things especially that, mm-hmm. yeah i think especially because because in a christian school christianity is so weaved in to everything right right so in um in high school which was a catholic high school i had a religion class right yeah. But in elementary school, everything was a religious class. Right. right? Like, yes. Like maybe everything except math. Right. <laughs> but, but English language, you know, science, like history, like there was nothing in which baby white Jesus didn't live. Right. 
right? And so trying to figure out who this baby white Jesus was and who I am um, was tough until my parents started going to a black church. Hmm. And that was the first time that I could clearly see the differences between white Christians and black Christians. And what was that, I mean, what was that experience like for you? Girl, I'll never forget. I'll never forget the first time, but I also don't think I'll ever forget how that church made me feel. Mm. And I want to say for the record, obviously, black churches are not places of like perfection or utopia. Right. right. I'm not suggesting <laughs> that, you know, we've got it all together. We've got just as much dysfunction as everyone else. But um, there was a level of embodiment in belting out gospel songs. There was a freedom in allowing what we would call the spirit of God to emotionally move people. Mm -hmm. There was an entirely different way of understanding the Bible stories and who those Bible stories were for and what those stories were trying to communicate. Um, so by way of just like a really quick example, when I was in school, everything was a checklist. So even if there was a really funny sermon, um, it was still, you should not lie. Right. You should watch your words. You should, right? Like right. it was all a behavioral checklist. When I got to this black church, the sermons were about how much God cares about that auntie on the third row who can't pay her light bill. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was about how God hasn't forgotten about the addict who just walked in off the street um, and how their life could still be changed. Mm -hmm. Right. Like there was a certain level of like being known and being seen and um, less concern about the behavior. Right. Less concern about the checklist. Um, less concern, quite frankly, about piety (laughs) and more concern about who black Jesus is and what black Jesus could do for our whole beings, Mm. not just our behaviors. Um, I'm reflecting on how you know, we, we, I like to kind of zoom out and then zoom back in, right? So yeah. the work that you're doing out in the world right now, you have this book, you have this platform, you're speaking at these amazing events. Um, but everything that you're doing in the external world right now has been because of the, the individual journey that you have been through. That's right. That's right. right. Austin, uh, going through this journey of learning to see herself, learning to reclaim herself, learning to mm-hmm. define herself. Absolutely. Right. Um, you spoke in the book about, I, I believe there was, there was a, was it an English class and the, the poem, um, the mask was read, the mm, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Yes. Poem. Um, and, I, you know, I'm thinking about how, 
I'll speak from my own experience again. Again, growing up in schools that were very white, basically, Mm -hmm. um, I really learned that it was important for me not to see myself. Wow. And that it was really important for me to minimize the parts of myself that stuck out like a sore thumb. Mm. Right. And so, um, part of my reclamation journey as a black woman has been learning to see myself as a black woman, understanding what that means. And then also defining for myself individually what that means rather than believing that I, that, that blackness is, is is monolithic. Right. Right. Really learning to define myself for myself and that the more that I, um, uh, that the, 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 the more that I nurture that relationship with self, the bigger impact it has on the, the outside world. That's so good. And so how, when you, when you were in that classroom and that poem was read to you by yeah. that teacher, I think, was yeah. it a white teacher? I think it was, right? It was. Yeah. He was right. Jewish. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> right. And so, you know, you were, I believe, the only Black student in that class. Is that yeah, right? I think so. I think so. Yeah. How did that feel in that moment of, you know, I imagine you were just kind of like in that same place I was where you weren't seeing yourself. And then suddenly this, I, these words oh are presented goodness. to you. Oh, my goodness. Mm. I, first of all, I don't know that I've ever read a poem that's so immediately connected mm. as it did in that moment. Um, and I love poetry, but it felt like, like a jolt went through my body. And maybe that's because I didn't choose it, right? Like I, I didn't pull it off a shelf, right? Like it was just put in front of me. Right. And to have something that was just placed in front of me connect so fast, I just wasn't prepared for it. I mean, um, yeah, it, it's that I, kind of a poem. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, whoa. Um, And, you know, the truth is that in that moment, I realized that I had gotten really good at turning, oh, this is going to sound funky, Layla, but turning Blackness off and on. It doesn't sound funky. It sounds like exactly what we are conditioned to do. Right? Yes. Um, it's, it's code I, switching. It's... Yes. Yes. And it's I shifting. think I think I was maybe, maybe more like the volume is mm-hmm. maybe even a better metaphor. Like I was turning it up and turning it down and turning it up and turning it down. And I was doing that based on my own comfort. I was doing that based on the comfort of those around me. Mm-hmm. I was doing it based on what grade I wanted. I was doing it based on wanting to shock those who maybe by looking at me thought I wasn't as smart or thought I wasn't as articulate Mm -hmm. or thought I wasn't right. And um, I, but I didn't know what to call it. Right. And and I almost not even sure that I knew I was doing it until I read the poem. And I was like, Holy shit. Mm, you felt like you got called out, right? I got called out, girl, <laughs> in this all-white class by a Jewish <laughs> teacher. And I was like, 
well, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> yeah. And for those who are, who want to read the poem, it's called We Wear the Mask by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. It's a short poem, but it's, wow. Yeah. It yeah. packs a punch. It mm-hmm. packs a punch. Especially when I think about how often we still do it. Like that line, um, why should the world be overwise and counting all our tears and sighs? Mm. Like we're still doing that. Right. Right. Like we, like something tragic happens in a black community and we go to work and we put on a mask as if nothing has bothered us. And then we go home and sigh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just so accurate. It's just so accurate. Austin, you, I love that in the title of your book, you specifically use the word dignity. Yes. So it's black dignity in a world made for, for whiteness. And that, that word specifically really just shot me through the heart. Um, mm. And I see you doing this work that is about racial justice and reconciliation while at the same time working really hard within yourself and, and in what you share to center, to center the, to center black people, to center That's yourself right. first That's as, right. a, as That's a black right. woman, and then to center um, uh, black, the black people whose work your work is for. That's um, absolutely true. How do you navigate um, this? And uh, the reason I'll tell you what I'm thinking about. There's a, there's a quote that I shared from your book. Let me just pull it up. Um, and it was, it really struck me. Let me just find it. <laughs> okay. And you were talking about, this is a section in the book where you're talking about um, how organizations put pictures on their websites to kind of give the appearance of racial diversity. Yes. Right. And so you said, it's so easy to believe the pretty pictures on the website filled with racial diversity, to buy in to the well-crafted statements of purpose, to enjoy being invited into the process of being part of the change. And then this is the part that I underlined. The role of a bridge builder sounds appealing until it becomes clear how often that bridge is your broken back. Girl. (laughs) Yes. Tell me it ain't true. (laughs) It is the truth. It is the truth. And and so I I look at this work that you're doing. I look at the work that I am doing in wanting to center ourselves. Right. While at the same time trying to be those good ancestors who are wanting to create a different paradigm and a different way of us being together collectively for the future where all of us can be free and all of us can have dignity. That's right. Right. Without though bypassing. Right. So So how do you, yeah. How do you navigate that? Yeah. I'm honestly, I'm learning one step at a time. Mm Mm-hmm. And I wish that I could just like in a flurry, like go to sleep tonight and then wake up and not be my own problematic favorite. Right. Um, <laughs> right? 
but unfortunately it doesn't work that way. So I just have to stay vigilant. Um, but I'll give you one example um, that was like clear as day for me recently. So I used to teach workshops where um, one of the activities I would do is the privilege walk. Mm where everyone stands shoulder to shoulder, black and white, and, you know, all people of color, um, whoever wants to participate, and a series of questions is read. And at the end of the question, either take a step forward or take a step backward. And the questions are, um, did you have a trust fund growing up? Did you grow up in a safe neighborhood? Did both of your parents go to college? Did both of your grandparents go to college? Um, were you a legacy student, right? All these questions of privilege. Mm -hmm. And if your response is yes, that was a privilege that I had, then you take a step forward. If you didn't, then you either stand still or you take a step backwards. Mm. So you can imagine at the end of this exercise, every single time <laughs> there is the white men way out front, right. the white women closely follow, people of color sort of like inching towards the back and often black and Latinx folks in the way back. Right. Right. And, um, and this was an exercise that I would do and would physically participate in. So I never read off the questions. I always participated. And it's an eye opening experience for white folks Black folks know what's going to happen by the third right. question, right? <laughs> by the right. third question, even if we've never done it, we're like, yep, mm -hmm. I know where this is going, mm -hmm. right? And by the time we get to the end, all the black folks are huddled in the back, high-fiving each other, going, girl, you too? Right. <laughs> me too. That just happened to me last week, right? Yeah. We're in the back having community with each other, and the white folks are like in the front crying because they're having an aha moment. Right, right. right. And here's what I realized. In that moment, I am not teaching Black people anything. Right. I'm not teaching them a thing. But I'm using their bodies, mm. purposefully putting them in last place so that white folks in the front can have an aha moment. Whew. right? Yeah. And not only am I placing other folks' bodies in this, I'm doing it to myself. Right. Because I always participate because I know that part of that community building that's happening in the back is to fight back the rising rage of injustice. Right. Right? That's, what, right. that's really what we're doing. Right. We are trying to laugh off and joke off and form some kind of community that says, don't burn it all to the ground right now. Mm. And here I am, girl, the teacher, sacrificing my own dignity, my own body, so that white folks can maybe have an aha moment. And I decided, one, I'm never doing that again. Amen. And two, I need to rethink what it means to have a successful workshop. And from now on, what it means to have a, a successful workshop means that black women feel so empowered, 
feel so affirmed that if I told them we were having a part two tomorrow, black women would be the first ones in the seats. Wow. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to do, girl. I'm trying to, I'm trying to shift my own paradigm into asking the question, what would it look like for these workshops to affirm our dignity and to put us at the center and let white folks catch up? Uh, Wow. This is so powerful, Austin. And what really strikes me is um, how even, I know this is, we all know this, but I think we need, I, I think we need to be reminded of it because sometimes when we see people who we have in our mind put on a pedestal because they are, have reached a certain level of uh, success or sure, you know, sure. impact that we forget that that person is still a work in progress. Listen, listen, right. still having to reanalyze, still having to rethink, right. Because because there's a lot of things that get passed down, mm-hmm. you know, that the privilege walk has been going on for a long time and it just got passed down. Right. You know, and I didn't think to interrogate it. Right. And I'm uh, learning how to interrogate. Right. And that that is something that you will continue doing for the rest of your That's life. Right. That's right. You know, it's actually the single scariest thing about writing a book. Yeah. Because now all my thoughts are out there forever. Right. And it's like, no, 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 I, I actually, I learned that that's actually not that simple and, you know, but it's done, it's out. And, and I, I, I for sure, I think I've been in the past a perfectionist and so have not wanted to put my work out or have feared doing that because I know how quickly I grow. That's Um, right. But if we don't put our work out, then it doesn't get to make the impact that it gets to make. That's um, right. And then That's and right. you get to grow and you get to learn. And so I, I really want to thank you for sharing that because I really am so tired of the idea that just because someone has reached a certain level, whatever we deem that to be, yep. that they yep. have quote unquote made it. No. And especially no. in this work, I think it requires right. depth of self-interrogation. I agree. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And, and so, you know, this piece around you centering yourself specifically, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know, the book is called Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Um, the bigger you grow, the, the more whiteness there is. Yes. Right? <laughs> Girl, that is a word. You are not lying. Right. And so you, you, you are, you are still that one person, but you are That's right. in a, in a bigger world. Of That's right. That's how, right. How do you, um, in your commitment to centering yourself in your commitment to giving yourself that dignity, what are some important things that you have decided for yourself? Some, some clear boundaries, Woo! some practices, some non-negotiables. How do you do that? First of all, child, I am just like, you are giving all kinds of language to things that I feel, but <laughs> haven't had language for. And that was one of them. Like my, my access, particularly to successful white women, has grown tremendously since that book release. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And, but I couldn't name that, right? Like the way mm-hmm. you just named it was so clear for me what's happening. Um, and I'm learning as I go. And that's just the honest to goodness truth. Yeah. I'm learning as I go. So the phrase that most immediately comes to mind is reparations now. Mm-hmm. And I'm real um, focused on how to put, um, how to put to work the desire for advocacy that the white women around me possess. <laughs> so yes, how yes. right? How do I put that to work? Right. How do I make that benefit um, the black community? How do I leverage? Yes. Right? this power and influence that they have, um, not for, for me, you know what? I'm not going to say not for me, for me, for you, (laughs) (laughs) for me, Uh for my family Mm -hmm. and for what I feel called to do in this work. Yes. You know? Um, so one thing that I'm clear about is who my friends are. Yeah. Who I grew up with who know my favorite candy bar, mm-hmm. who, right, who I would call in a crisis, yeah. and who my partners in this work are. Yes. Because that's not the same thing. No, it's not. No. You know? And so I'm, I'm finding myself becoming very clear um, so that I don't get sucked in, because you know this isn't one of the chapters, girl. These folks ain't your friends. Right. <laughs> Right. 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 (laughs) And I really sometimes want to believe that Brene and I are friends, Layla. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I really want to be like, sure, I'm going to go call Brene. Right. I ain't calling Brene. I don't have Brene's number. Right. Brene and I are not friends. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that we couldn't be partners in the work. Right. And so that's, I, I would say that's the, that thing at the top of my mind right now is how do I leverage these relationships in order to create healthy, um, mutual, um, profitable um, partnerships that further racial justice? Mm. I really love that distinction between friends and partners. I, I for sure have definitely found for myself that as part of my self-care and part of my centering myself and being able to stay really grounded that it's been really important for me to be clear on who those people I know who shared my same values um will be able to give me honest and kind feedback that's right um who aren't necessarily even doing this work although a lot of them are Mm -hmm. um not necessarily even doing this work but know my heart that's right yeah yes know how to hold space for me and I pour into them and they pour into me. That's Um, right. But you're right. Like these folks ain't your friends. And I think it's very easy to, um, I I, I think it's very, I think it's very important for us to be, uh, to be clear with ourselves about the allure, the allure of whiteness. That's right. Right. And then, and then also to understand that we're in a time right now where what we're needing is the leadership and the voices of, of women of color and black women. Yes. And um, we're needing to put ourselves, rather than seeing it as how can they help me? It's like, I, 
no, flip it. Like you absolutely just said, how can I leverage yep. this and put it to work for the benefit That's of right. myself and, and my community? That's right. That's right. Right. Because it's those, the, the, the power and the privilege and the, the influence that those um, people have that you're referring to, it, it could have a huge influence. Huge. Huge. Huge influence. And I've written and spoken a lot about the, about white women leaders. Yep. Um, but they, they, they need accountability to. That's right. Right. And it's harder to give that accountability when I'm not thinking about us as partners. Yes. When you're thinking about you as friends. Yeah. When right. I'm thinking about, wh- about whether or not I want to be invited over to, right. you know, Brene's cookout. And right. I might be like, you know what? <laughs> Brene, I'm going to let that slide because I want my invitation. <laughs> but if we're partners, mm-hmm. then it becomes crucial for me to have conversations. Mm-hmm. Because it's about the work that we are doing together. And, and the, and the and work the, will only be as good as we are. Right. And the partnership will only be as strong as you are centering yes. yourself. Yes. And not sacrificing yourself. That's right. Yeah. That's, That's powerful, right. Austin. Really powerful. Um, the allure of whiteness. That's It's very real. real. That's real, girl. And that's a, that's a great phrase for, um, yeah, for understanding, um, oh man, for understanding how easy it is, even when your intentions, Mm -hmm. right, are pure to still get sucked into the matrix. Yes. Yeah. 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 And that's, and that's conditioning. That's right. Right. And that's, that's our own internalized oppression. That's right. That's right. And and that's why for me, I know my healing work, I really, I really prioritize my own individual healing work because I can only be as effective as someone who's, you know, in a position of leadership as the work that I'm doing on myself. That's right. Oh, it's so true. Mm. Austin. Every time I come back from a travel gig, I mm. always take a day off. Yes. Um, because when I'm old and <laughs> <You're not laughs> traveling, old. <laughs> traveling takes a lot out of me. You know, I used to be able to just hop on and off jets and, you know, mm-hmm. off planes and, you know, and I'd be like, ooh. Can I even make it to the parking lot? This bag <laughs> sure is heavy, you know? <laughs> and so I'm just realizing that I am more than my work. Mm. Um, but that in a similar way to what we were just talking about, if I don't prioritize my well-being, the work suffers too. Yes. Yeah. And, and I really believe that, you know, my kind of philosophy around being a living ancestor and someone who is wanting to become a good ancestor is if what I'm, if the way that I'm being is not the priority, if I, if I'm focusing on the, what I'm doing in the world and not focusing on how I'm being in, in, inside of myself, what I'm doing 
it is meaningless ultimately. Mm. Um, because there is a, there is a misalignment. If I'm yeah. not clear on myself that who I am, what my relationship to myself is, how I center myself, what I'm doing out in the world loses its impact. That's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yes. Um, Austin, when it comes to, um, how, how, you know, you've, this is your first book, you're getting, um, these great opportunities to speak. I know you just came back from a trip yesterday and you, no, sorry, day before yesterday. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and you've been recovering. Um, what do you see for yourself? What are you wanting to create in the next year? I'm so scared to say it out loud. <laughs> you, you don't have to if you don't want to, but. <laughs> um, um, I really want to start having more conversations like this. Yes. Um, I don't want to start a podcast. <laughs> That's so much work. And I know myself. Um, so I just want to be on your podcast. Um, but I do want to figure out what it looks like to have more conversations like this mm. in which we are talking to each other, um, in which black womanhood is centered, um, in which folks who are listening um, if they don't understand, are expected to catch up, right? Um, right? Are expected to do the work? Are expected to get on the Googles, um, and and find we wear the mask, <laughs> you know? Um, but I feel like in the work that I'm doing, these are the conversations that are moving the needle forward. You know, I feel like every now and again on TV, there's always this: let's have a national conversation, right? Right? <laughs> and it's like an hour long program on CNN. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't envision that that's how the national conversation is going to take place, right? The revolution will not be televised. Mm. Um, and so I want to figure out what, what that looks like. So hopefully more details coming in the new year. Yeah. But yeah, that's what I want to do. What is it about conversation that really excites you? You know, I, I think um, it's an opportunity for me to share what I think I know. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's also an opportunity for me to learn. Yes. And so as much as I love, you know, public speaking and, and getting up and doing the keynote or preaching the sermon, like that's a lot of fun for me. Um, but it's not nearly as much fun as when I get to sit and have a conversation with someone because the, the energy is different. Yeah. The energy is completely different. And I love when I'm having my own aha moments, right? I've had them in this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, the anchoring of my grandmothers on both sides of me, the allure of whiteness, um, how success invites you into greater white spaces. You know, mm -hmm. like even, right? Even in this conversation, Layla, I'm like, fireworks are going off in my brain. Um, and I love that feeling. I may be kind of addicted to it. That's this is why I podcast. It's like <laughs> I secretly just get to teach, just get to talk to people that I love and admire, and I get to have those aha moments. It's, yeah, I'm like I get paid to do this. This is awesome. Yeah. Right, right. I love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, what have been the hardest parts of your journey, and what have been the parts of your journey that have given you the most joy? Wow. Um, the hardest part has been 
realizing the depths to which everything my parents warned me about is true. Oh, that part. Oh my gosh. Right? Oh, yes. Yeah. What is that? that? What is that? I know that. I know yeah. what that just struck. From I know you. Really, yeah, yeah. I'm really curious what it meant to you. Um, yes, that there was a reason they told me not to pick up things in the store mm-hmm. and then put my hands in my pockets. Mm. And that there was a reason why they named me Austin. Um, Can you tell people who don't pass- know? Who don't yeah, yeah, yeah. Austin. Yeah. Yeah, so my parents named me Austin um, because Austin is a family name, Um, but my parents loved it because they knew that if someone hadn't met me yet, so if my name was just on a resume or a cover letter, an application, um, that people would assume I'm a white guy Mm -hmm. and that that would get me at least in the door. Yeah. And when my parents first told me that as I was a little girl, I didn't fully understand. Like I knew they were trying to tell me about some injustice that existed in the world, but until I experienced it, right. Until I walked into my first interview and realized that the person who was going to bring me into the next room was afraid they had invited the black girl instead of the white guy. Yeah. Right. So, so I think the most succinct way I can, I can say it is realize, yeah, realizing that everything my parents warned me about when it comes to whiteness, when it comes to being black in America, when it comes to moving through the world as a black woman, that it was all true, that the prep wasn't hysterical. It wasn't over the top. It wasn't untrue. It wasn't too much. Um, that the warnings were, it wasn't paranoia, Mm. that it was all real. And if you had to, um, give a, um, like a, uh, a feeling word to that feeling when you had that realization that it was all true, what would, what would be the word that would describe that feeling? Devastation. Yeah. Complete. Yeah. And I think it's devastating every time. I think it's devastating every time there's another unarmed black person who gets killed. Mm. It's devastating every time there's a horrendous police encounter with a young black female teenager. It's devastating every time we get stopped in the store, followed in the store. It's devastating every time I see, you know, President Obama out and about and wonder if someone is going to take his life. It's devastating every time I'm afraid that my husband is going on a business trip and he might not come back home because he has to go through sundown towns to get to wherever he got to go. You know, like it's, it's devastating every time. Right. Completely, just completely heartbreaking. Yes. Um, and as a mother, I imagine. Ooh, child, I'm not even ready. Right. I'll be honest. We might have to have like a round two conversation. Right. Because I am still, I am still living in the joy Mm -hmm. of having a little black boy because he's still so young. Yeah. Would you, would you say that that's been the part of your journey that's given you the most joy? Oh my gosh. He's so delightful. So I'll, I'll be honest in the beginning. No. (laughs) (laughs) In the middle of, listen, in the middle of postpartum depression, when I was thinking, what the heck did I do to my life? And will I ever have a career again? Um, that was a big fat no. Mm -hmm. Um, but now that I can hear him giggle 
And now that he's learning how to clap his hands together and he's discovering new things and new sounds, um, he's trying out new words. Um, like he's, he's becoming a human mm. before my eyes. And there is something so magical about that. So simple and so magical um, that he is the greatest source of delight in my mm. life right now, for sure. And in terms of, you know, you're speaking about the devastation of finding out that what your parents had told you was true. You know, I really, uh, in my own work and in my own family, one of the things that I really am concentrating on is um, breaking the patterns that were handed down to me so that my children can have a different experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm wondering, you know, as someone who lives in America where mm, a lot of the conditions are the same. That's right. In terms of when you were coming up. And he's That's right. Out, right. Not much has changed. Not much has changed. And yet yeah. I imagine you also want to fill him with an understanding of his, the fullness of his humanity, that he is, his being isn't wrong, that it is beautiful. Yeah. And to fill him with hope and, and, and to fill him up. Yeah. You know, what are your thoughts around that? I have no idea what that looks like. Yeah. I have no it's idea. No easy answers. Mm. No. And it's why I need other um, black mothers in my life. Yeah. Um, who are trying to answer that question too. Um, because I, the truth is, I don't know. And I feel us, uh, or I sense me and my husband practicing right now. Um, so, like, my husband will turn on John Coltrane. Um, as he puts him to sleep at night mm. um, and they listen to uh, Missy Elliott and uh, Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Get your, get your freak on. Get your is freak my on. little boy's favorite song. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but we just find ourselves participating in the joy of black mm-hmm. culture right now. Mm-hmm. And I think my husband and I want to get creative about how that looks into his future. Um, Because I'm not sure it's wise to not prepare him at all. Right. Right. But I wonder if there can be a balance of joy, right, in our household, in our community, um, in our spiritual family um, that, yeah, that still centers dignity, Mm. you know? Um, So that's what I'm thinking through. But I haven't had to implement yet. So we're going to, yeah. we're going to do, we're going to do part two one day. Go, I hear you. We <laughs> practice as we go. And, you know, That's we all right. want to protect our children. Um, yes. And, and from, from an, the anti-black world that we live in. That's right. Um, and at the same time, I think the devastation that you described earlier is like, what was attached to it for me was I didn't then also get the message that, and this is wrong. No, that's good. Right. I got the message that this is the way the world is. Mm. And that's just how it is. Wow. Right. I didn't get the message that this is the way the world is and it's wrong. And this is actually what your value is. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. 
Oh, Austin, this has been, I've, I've had several aha moments <laughs> during this oh, I'm, I'm glad it's not just me. <laughs> <laughs> so many. Um, and we could, we really could go on. I, I, um, I want to let people know where to find your work. So I yeah. can find you at austinchanning.com and we'll make sure to include all links in um, the show notes as well. I Perfect. really highly encourage everyone to purchase your book. Um, I'm still here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Um, for me as a Black woman, it was extremely healing to read it. Mm. Um, and I imagine for um, anyone else, especially white people, I think that this is very um, educational. Um, to get an inside look at what the experience is like for us. But I, I also want to say, Austin, I really, even though that this book is, will be educational for white people, I really want to thank you for not um, partaking in, uh, what's the word, kind of, oh, what's the word, you know, kind of where you're, that's it, uh, pain pimping. Yeah. 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 Pain pimping. So you were not saying, and this is me and I'm a poor black girl and this has been my experience and isn't it terrible? I really want to thank you for not doing that. You really yeah. told the truth, but centered your dignity. So thank oh, you for that. Thank you so much for saying that. Mm. Um, and also there is a, a handy study guide that goes with the there workbook. Is. Yes. That's available on Austin's um, website. So if you want to um, go through a book circle, she has a study guide with really great questions. She has videos. Um, you, I, I love how you just made it a whole experience. Well, you know, <laughs> I remember when Tanasi Coates' book Between the World and Me came out. Mm -hmm. And the number one thing I heard from white folks who loved the book was, I do not feel equipped to have a conversation about this. Right. Right. Even having read it. And so I was like, okay. Yeah. I release this. There will be a discussion guide. Yeah. <laughs> after you read it, I need you to be able to talk about it. Right. Yeah. It's really, it's really wonderful that you included that. Um, so I encourage everyone to check that out and we'll make sure to include the link to that in the show notes as well. Austin, thank you for being here. Thank you for your light, for your laughter, for your dignity, for your truth, um, for your creative voice. I really, truly appreciate you. What a pleasure to be here. Mm. Okay, our final question before we close out. I want to know, what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? Oh, I think it means continuing to embody the world that my grandmothers could only dream of. I think it means stretching as wide as I can, taping, taking up as much space as I can, thriving as much as I can, dancing as hard as I can, um, despite what the world thinks, despite what the world wants, um, to be, to be as much black woman <laughs> mm -hmm. as I can be in this world. Beautiful. Thank you.
Thanks for having me, Leela. I hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights and find deeper answers to what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to hear what some of your aha moments have been from this conversation. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at at Good Ancestor Podcast and drop us a comment to let us know what some of your biggest takeaways have been. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor. <laughs>